safetyfm.com with Jay Allen. Changing safety cultures, one broadcast and one podcast at a time. Welcome to Safety FM, where we talk about safety that's truly inspired by you. This episode of the broadcast and the podcast has been brought to you by Safety Focus Moment. They are consultants that want to help you get to the safety culture that you've been looking for. For more information, go to safetyfocusmoment.com. Well, hello and welcome to Safety FM. This is Jay Allen. I tell you, I do a lot of research when it comes to safety and podcasting, and I was able to locate this podcast hosted by Jill James. It's a different point of view about safety. And she talks about how most of the people in the safety industry get involved by accident. So today is our conversation with Jill James from the Accidental Safety Pro Podcast. Safety FM, changing safety cultures, one broadcast and one podcast at a time. Hello, Jill James, and welcome to Safety FM. How are you today? I'm great, Jay. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate you coming on. I will have to tell you, I was listening to the Accidental Safety Pro and I heard your podcast and I was like, we have to have you on. I just want to know, how did it start? How did the journey start? How did you start getting into safety? And then we'll kind of tie it back into how did you get into the podcasting aspect? Sure. So how did I get into safety? Well, accidentally, like uh, <laughs> like many of us in the, in the profession, I was finishing up my undergrad degree in community health education and I needed to find an internship. And it, this was the um, early 90s and the job market was pretty competitive. And I was looking at a list of internships and seeing things like American um, Red Cross, Lungs, associations like that. And um, at the very bottom of the list, I saw Department of Transportation and I thought, and it said safety. And I thought, well, nobody's gonna want that. What's safety? That sounds totally boring. It won't be competitive. I'll be able to get that internship and I'll be able to get my degree done. And so um, I contacted the Department of Transportation, applied for the internship. I got it and uh, found myself at a DOT office learning about workplace safety for the first time. My undergrad program had had one class on safety, but it was more like sort of personal safety stuff, not industrial safety. And uh, when I got to the DOT, all of the um, safety directors around the state who are assigned different regions were telling me, um, hey kid, everybody called me kid because I'm in my early 20s, hey kid, you should go to the University of Minnesota. You should get your master's degree in safety like we did. And then you'll be able to get a job and you'll be able to pay off your student loans. And this isn't that bad of an industry and you should do that. And so I, you know, I learned enough about what workplace safety might be about to go, yeah, okay, maybe I'll take all these guys' advices. And when I say guys, I mean guys, all men um, who had those jobs at the time. And uh, that's what I did. I went to the university and got my master's degree in industrial safety. And while I was doing that, my family was asking me, since I was the first person to ever go to college in my family, they were asking me, what do you, what are you going to, what kind of job are you going to get with this? Like, what is that? And I said, I don't know. I suppose I could work for like OSHA or something. 
and um, and I was finishing up my degree and needed to find another internship and found one at the Department of Military Affairs working at a military base um, installation and did some um, environmental and safety work there. And while I was there, my mentor from the DOT called me one day and he said, hey, Jill, OSHA's hiring. You should apply. I'm like, okay. You know, I'm still in, I'm in my early 20s and I'm like, okay. So I applied for this job with OSHA and got an inter, or got a, um, got an interview, got the job and spent um, the next um, little over 10 years as an investigator in general industry and construction in my home state in the Midwest and, and then went on to uh, private sector after that. And that's where I've spent the balance of my career now some 23 years into it. Wow. 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 Just listening to that. It's like, okay, so you started a department of transportation and then you go into, so then you go back to school essentially to, you know, to get the master's degree. So how do you end up in military affairs? How, how do you end up working that out? (laughs) I have DOT experience in military affairs. (laughs) Right. Uh, I think part of it was logistics and, and another part of it was I had a lot of family members, you know, you always work your network, right? I had a lot of family members who worked at that military installation. It was a National Guard um, installation. And one of them um, knew about this environmental health and safety department um, at that installation and said, hey, you know what? They hire interns sometimes, maybe you should apply. And so I met with their director and the colonel that was in charge of that department. And uh, sure enough, there I was working uh, working at camp for, um, I think, six months maybe. And they actually paid me, which was unheard of at that time to have a paid internship. And the the person that I reported to, his name is David, and he had a lot of swagger and looked like Harrison Ford. And uh, he and I had so much fun um, working together, um, running around that military base and looking at environmental and safety things and finding like unexploded ordinances and in in, uh, in places that they shouldn't be in crazy stuff that I never thought I'd be doing as a 20 some year old. <laughs> so, so a couple of questions come out right away. It's like, what stage is Harrison Ford looking at that time? Is it, is it American? <laughs> Are we talking Star Wars? No, 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 no. No, no, he was he was older and with a swagger and he <laughs> taught me things. Uh, he taught me things like, you know, um, back in my day, women would always wear black to work on Fridays because it would transfer to the cocktail hour. <laughs> so I've, I've always kept those kind of things in mind. But he was uh, he was definitely um, a, a mentor of a, of a wise, uh, older sage kind of person to me. But um, I always think fondly of David and, and what he taught me. So just out of curiosity, you being essentially a civilian on a military base, and then you're also right. talking about safety as an intern. How does that work? Because I know there, I mean, nothing against the military. My Both of my parents in the military, my sister was in the military. So love and respect the military personnel. But at the same time, I know from a civilian aspect and an intern, it has to probably be a difficult yeah. conversation dealing with some military personnel at the time. I had to learn really quickly um, rank and understanding rank and how to address people properly. I remember being really kind of panicky about being able to read stripes and read the, you know, read someone's uniform, essentially read them so I knew how to address them. And I wouldn't say that I retain that knowledge. I probably wouldn't be able to do that today (laughs) if I tried. But there were a number of civilians that worked at that particular camp. So there was a mixture of... uh, 
of uh, military personnel and then civilians as well. And, you know, yeah, sure, I'm a I'm a kid, essentially. But they gave me kind of solo tasks to do that summer um, where I was identifying different environmental risks um, with regard to like oil spills and things that were happening on the base. Did a lot of touring to other um other other military uh, armories where we were looking particularly at asbestos concerns, um, um, s- a storage of fuels. Um, let's see, we were looking at uh, oh lead because a lot of the armories had um, firing ranges in them. So we we're really doing a lot of environmental things um, that you know not a lot of people knew about anyway. So we came in essentially as the authority. It was it was really fun. It was a really interesting learning curve. So as you look at your overall safety career to this point, who would you say would yeah. be who has been your influences? I know that you referenced David in the previous story, but who has been your influences when it comes to the safety aspect? Especially it's, it definitely seems like it was accidental, as so does your podcast reference about the accidental safety pro. But it does sound like it's accidental and how you fell into this. If you had to look back and say these people influenced me the most when it comes to safety, who would you say those people are? Right. That's a really great question. And I really feel that um, I believe very strongly in mentors and having mentors and seeking them out. And I also believe that they come to you at different seasons of your life. And so, you know, one season was that guy from the DOT and what, you know, what that led me into. And, you know, David at, at, uh, at the, at the military base was another one. And then when I started with OSHA, I had a number of different mentors. So imagine, imagine being 20, I think I was 24, 25 years old when I got that OSHA job and they assigned me to a geographic territory in a very rural part of my home state. And they gave me 10 counties to inspect. And in the training, when you get to OSHA, you spend six months in training and three months are just in the actual headquarters office, learning the ins and outs of regulations and how to write reports and, you know, where your references are and how to do things, you know, properly to please the attorney general's office um, when come, you know, when the time came where they were reviewing my reports. Um, But then the other three months was spent in the field. And uh, learning with others and mentoring, being mentored by others. And so I was assigned to three guys who also had um, rural territories, uh, Richard, Bob and Dale. And they were all very different. And I had two week rotations with each of them. And they became the people that taught me everything, Um, you know, with a smattering of other people. But they really gave me my base and my foundation. Um, Richard was um, former Air Force and um, he was very proper and did everything by the book and he had every regulation memorized. This guy was just sharp. He was so sharp. Um, I think he ironed his blue jeans. You know, like everything was proper about Richard. (laughs) And, uh, And when we would do an inspection together, the employer would say, how long is this going to take? And he's like, I don't know. We're going to start at the doorknob and work our way in. And then as he wrote his um, notes, he would cite the regulation in his notes. So he didn't have to go back and look it up later. Like I have always had to do. He had them memorized. And so he'd write them down. 
And he taught me so much about hazard recognition skills. It was amazing. He was just so great. And people called him the hammer because he hammered out so many citations and he would call me and tell me how much his citation package weighed before he mailed it in to be reviewed because this was long before we were emailing anything. And employers loved him because he was teaching as he was identifying. Hammer didn't mean he was hammering an employer to death. He was teaching along the way and doing his job. And so then people started to call me the little hammer. And <laughs> because, of, because of my tutelage under, under Richard and um, and Dale, Dale was former military as well. You see a theme here. This is really common with safety professionals from way back when. And Dale had gotten a job with OSHA right when I worked for a state OSHA department. And he had been working um, as a union steward in the automobile industry. And he was asked by the governor at the time when OSHA began in my state um, if he would come on and be an investigator. And so um, Dale came from the Navy formerly, and he also had this union background, and he was so interested in um, employees and um, treating people appropriately and making sure I was talking with employees in a respectful manner. Um, he And he was also very much into coaching me not to be rattled on an inspection. And so like what Dale taught me was, um, OSHA investigators all have this checklist that they have to follow. And the checklist is essentially to make sure that you're telling employers what their legal rights are, uh, as well as employees, and that you're doing certain pieces and parts of the inspection that are required by you. And he said, listen, kid, you're going to memorize this, this checklist eventually. He said, but I want you to use it every single time. He said, every single time, take it out. Every single time, go over it, check the boxes off. He said, because there's going to come a time where somebody's going to get in your face or you're going to get really rattled or maybe it's going to be a fatality investigation and you know things are getting really emotional you lean into that checklist use that checklist every time and that'll keep you focused and that will help you when things start to get a little bit wonky and that was such wonderful advice that he gave me um, and I did that and I did it consistently for the over 500 investigations I did where I was the lead investigator and he was right when things did go sideways or when someone was trying to get in my face because not all employers are gracious to government regulators. No way. Um, and, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, big surprise. Um, <laughs> uh, I did that and it was such great advice. It was wonderful. And the other thing that Dale and I learned by um, accident, we in did an inspection one day together on April Fool's Day. And the company we are inspecting did not believe us and <laughs> didn't believe we were investigators because it happened to be April Fool's Day. And we both looked at each other and were like, note to self, never schedule another inspection on April Fool's Day. It's just like, it's it's just like, nobody needs that, right? It's not a joke. I'm sorry. It is a joke. What a, you know, the irony, blah, blah, blah. So and, what, was, um, what did they believe there? If you don't mm -hmm. mind me asking, did they, were they under the impression like you were hired actors and actresses in regards of coming in? And yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like it was a big joke. I mean, we turned that around pretty quickly, but the immediate impression was, you got to be kidding. This must be a joke. And then, oh, crap, you're not kidding. How cruel. Why are you doing this today? You know, it was. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder how many yeah. things they showed you before they actually realized that it was a legitimate 
actual OSHA inspection. Yeah. And it was like, oh, here, just take a look at this. We don't care. And then all of a sudden, turned around and was like, oops. Yeah, it didn't. It, it didn't. It didn't go on that. It didn't go on that long because we needed to, you know, establish our legitimacy. And of course, you have badges and all that business, and so the, you know, stuff becomes real pretty quick. <laughs> Let me ask you a strange question here. Yeah. With the, a lot of your influence being military personnel. Did that change the way that you viewed safety at the time? Did you feel that you might have been a little bit more strict than what you were before when you were just dealing strictly with DOT? Or did you think that it didn't really change you at all? No, I think probably their influence um, with the military probably taught me more um, structure, I would say. Structure and respect for hierarchy. Um, because it's kind of baked, in, you know, it's baked into the pie with um, with military. And as a person who's in her 20s with no work experience, I think it really helped me like adapt myself into business practices um, more quickly. Whereas I may not have caught on to like hierarchical things or, or how organizations work and function. And I think I probably gleaned that out of out of my influence with so many military people yeah my my uh, my third mentor bob bob um was kind of a he was kind of a joker um did his job really really well um but he added levity and showed me how to add levity to try to like diffuse situations because you know when you're a regulator and you walk into somewhere you're going to get a handful of responses you know people who are like yeah i've been there done that we've been inspected a million times what flavor are you um to um panic to sweating to neck turning red to shaking to nausea that kind of response to anger i hate the government i hate you i don't know you but you just walked into my place i don't want you here you know in a real heightened state of of anger and Bob was just really great at you know sort of taking things slow and speaking in a particular manner and tone and and um, just being reassuring to people and uh, I really uh, I really learned a lot from him if you don't mind me asking if you were not in the safety industry what do you think you'd be doing oh wow um, you know I th- I really feel that my work in safety has always been about advocacy for people and I think if I wasn't in safety, I'd be doing advocacy in another in another place. Um, maybe it would be, you know, leaning into that community health degree and doing advocacy and education in that regard. But, you know, really always concerned about human beings and their well-being and if they're being treated well and fairly. And so something in advocacy likely. So as you're going through your safety journey, you're looking at the different aspects and almost I don't want this to come across like we're doing a career recap because you're not retiring or anything. To yeah. that extent. I know that sometimes some of those no. questions come across that way. When you look back, what has been some of the biggest pushbacks that you've seen within the industry when you're trying to implement anything? Oh, right. I, I call it the safety cliches. And um, I've blogged about this because it's so annoying um, and you know them and you've heard lots of people likely talking about them. Um, you know, you, you try to explain why something is a hazard, why it's dangerous, why you need to institute X, Y, and Z to you know, mitigate a problem. And the answer you get is, well, I've been doing it this way for 30 years and nothing's happened to me yet. You know, cliche, right? Or cliche number two, 
That's such a quick job. That's like a two minute job. Cliche number two. Cliche number three is, yeah, but we only do that once a year, twice a year. It's not that big of a deal. You know, it's like those kind of things have always been um, the pushback. And probably the fourth one is that's going to take too much time. And all of that safety stuff, you know, usually the time one is coupled with all that safety stuff actually makes things more dangerous. You know, you think you're going to do all that stuff, but all you're doing is interfering with my workflow and all that stuff you're talking about adds more risk than if I just did it the way that I did it. And, you know, for each of those cliches, every time I hit it, hear them and I want to smack my head and go, if you only knew how many hundreds and hundreds of times I've heard this and how many times I heard these same things uttered at someone's death in the workplace you wouldn't be saying that stuff. And so those those are those are the things that are kind of like nails on the chalkboard, I think, to most safety professionals are those cliches and how you take a breath and go, okay, what you just said isn't new to me. Now, how am I going to address it this time? <laughs> you know? Right. You hear so many different creative ways that a lot of people bring that up. And sometimes it's just not the understanding of what the organization is trying to accomplish. When we start talking yeah. about accomplishments through the organization and running into some of these cliches, what method of safety do you practice? Is there a particular method that you lean to more? I mean, I know there's a lot of conversations about behavior-based safety. There's a lot of conversations about human organizational performance. If you had to say that there's a method that you use, is there one that sticks over another? Yeah, I think it really depends on the audience and um, to whom you're trying to sway an opinion. I think when it when it comes to management, where you're needing to do an ask, it's really knowing your audience and what's going to resonate with them and what drives them to make decisions. Uh, you know, whether it's monetary and how you can show some sort of ROI um, or you know, where it can blend into someone else's budget and how it would help that particular manager with their organization. And then I think, you know, there's also the times where people are driven by doing the right thing. And so how you frame up your ask is really dependent, I believe, on the audience and um, what's going to resonate with them and enable them to make the most logical decision in their mind, um, the way that they think about how they how they go forward and with, when it comes to employees I, I i guess what i have learned is to answer the question for them what's in it for me it's not because it's the rule and it's the right thing to do but for the employee when you're trying to modify behavior or you know have them do things a certain way it's really what's in it for them um which means how will i how is this going to enable them to go home safe today? And here's really explaining the why behind things. You know, this is what I'm looking at. This is what can go wrong. This is what can happen. Did you ever have X, Y, and Z happen to you? Oh yeah. Okay. So what we're trying to prevent is this today. Oh, you know, and so really the what's in it for them, not the, because, you know, someone in an office told you how to do it that way. Now, you you said quite a bit in, in that answer, so I want to kind of go back and break down a yeah. little bit of it. So when you're having the conversation, it sounds like at this particular point, you're having a conversation with the upper management when they were turning around and saying return on investment. Is that a conversation yeah. that's a common throughout your career where they're wanting to know what the return on investment is for X program opposed to looking at a safety perspective? Right. So it's something that I learned 
um, well, again, by accident and through making mistakes and trying to figure out how to do it. So when I when I left OSHA, my next job was with a healthcare organization, um, a clinic system with, you know, mothership clinic and all kinds of little clinics in a regional area. And I, you know, I get to my first um, non-government job and and uh, there's an administrator of the clinic and I'm identifying a hazard. It happened to be a hazard on the roof of the building and uh, where employees, maintenance employees were, you know, changing out things on air handling units and um, they didn't have fall protection. And so I wrote up what I would have written up for an argument for a citation. Like, here's what, here's why it's a hazard. This is what's wrong. Here's the, here's the regulations in violation of, here's how it can be fixed. I did some research and found out like, this is how much it would cost to do, you know, this kind of fall protection system, blah, blah, blah. Send it off to the administrator. It's beautiful, right? It's a beautiful piece of writing. The attorney general's office would have loved it. I got it. I got the response back an email from the administrator who said, less words, three bullet points max. And are we ahead of the curve, behind the curve, or on the curve compared to other people like us in our industry that would give me any reason to want to do this? And I'm like, oh crap. Oh crap. Like this guy doesn't care about regulations. He doesn't care about how great of a report I wrote. And really he wants to know how to make a business decision based on sort of, there's black and there's white and there's gray, but what is everybody else doing? And I just, I just want to be riding the curve. And that's what he told me later. He said, I want to be on the curve. I don't really like to be behind and I certainly don't ever want to be ahead. And so, that no, and it was a hard no, and he never did agree to do anything with the fall protection on the roof because he just didn't think it was that important because insert cliche, they only were up there a couple times a year. Um, I didn't get anywhere with that, but him giving me that hard stop really helped me understand very quickly how I needed to change my ask. And so, you know, move into another job and um, a company that had never done any training at all with safety other than show YouTube videos. After a 65 year history in a company, they hire me. They're like, hey, Jill, we got to get this stuff together. And I'm like, you need to do training. But you have all these locations and all these companies and all these languages and all these different disciplines. I can't write curriculum and do all that training, you know, for 1500 employees in five states myself. So we're going to need to, you know, find a resource. We're going to need to do some online training and this is how much it's going to cost. But before I asked for that, I um, added up for them what they had been spending on workers' compensation and I broke down their comp costs in um, for the last couple of years and then showed them where their injuries were, what type of injuries were they were getting um, that were the most costly and um, which at which frequency and I broke it down that way and I said if we did training on this subject this subject and this subject I think we could drive down these specific areas and they said mm, okay and I couldn't believe I got a yes but I got to institute this training program and I also was managing the workers compensation cases myself and I was explaining that I wanted employees to report their injuries early and often and management went whoa I don't think so I said no no it's going to be cheaper if we're taking care of people before it becomes a runaway train they're like okay you get to try this for a while so after the first year, we went from spending $1.4 $1. million a year to $850,000 a year. 
and I had my ROI. And uh, so they, you know, got together, I presented my data and they went, whoa, all right. And I did another ask for something else that I needed, like an SDS management system or something like that. And they're like, how much money are you going to save us next year? (laughs) (laughs) And I'm like, okay, you know, challenge accepted. But, you know, using that kind of real data to prove up ROI was so powerful. I I have never used, and I, I just personally don't think it works to use theoretical data like if we have a back injury it's going to cost this many dollars and you know the iceberg effect of blah 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 and all that stuff you can read about a million times over in safety i just don't think that lands with management because it's not real you know it's it's a theory and then you can always butt up against that with that cliche of well it hasn't happened here in 30 years so why would it no so if you Um, so i don't tend i don't tend to use that Okay, so without having actually safety professionals listening to us, and you're saying that you have the—that's the way that you present the ask. Do you believe that there should be more of a focus as a safety professional in regards of understanding the corporate structure and the business side on how they approach these things, opposed to them just going strictly safety? Because I'll tell you, I've dealt with organizations where their previous people that were in safety, all they talked about was reg, and they want to talk about regs and you go into a board meeting and you talk regs, they look at you like you're from a different planet. But if you go in yeah, there- ice glaze over. And if you go in there and you start talking money, because they're only, essentially it's your elevator speech. It's this yep. short period of time that you have. So how much focus would yep. you say if somebody who's going into the industry or is already in the industry, would you recommend them going back to school in regards of understanding business administration? Or would you just say, hey, no, you just need to really understand the business with inside of your company. I think that that's the missing that's the missing piece for safety professionals and probably always has been. You know, even going back to my graduate program, I didn't get any any education on business, business strategy, budgeting, all of all of the things that would have framed up the terminology even to use. I didn't have that. And I think that's what's missing in our industry, that it would be so powerful. If I were to go back to school right now, I would get my MBA. Um, I wouldn't focus on anything else in safety, but I would really love to be able to have more tools at my disposal um, for for working with management systems. When I'm dealing with our clients now, it's one of the top questions I get is how do I explain that? How do I make an ask? How do I do that in their terms? You know, and how how you know how can I do that? Because you know, a lot of people aren't equipped with that information. And I had a gentleman on by the name of James Skipper Kendrick, and he said that he's had conversation with board level executives and they will reference that they don't have a problem with a safety person having a seat at the table, but they want them to earn it the same way that they had to get that seat at the table. And I think think that's where we have an issue within our industry because there's not a lot of schools out there that teach a safety program that has business built into it. And I keep on looking and going, where is the correct place to go to? And if I was starting off from scratch right now, do I focus mostly on business or do I focus on safety Mm -hmm. with a secondary in business or do I do it the other way around? And I think that that's where Mm -hmm. a lot of the questions come about at times. 
Yeah, I, I agree with that. And I think it's just so tricky to try to find that for myself um, within the last number of years. And this this isn't going to work for everyone, but it's what I did. Um, I went to my CEO and I said, I want to learn more about the business end of our company. I would like a seat at the table, like said all of those words. And I really want to understand our business in a greater sense um, so that I can do my job more effectively. Will you teach me? And he said, yes. And so over a period of time, you know, there's little sprinklings of teaching me um, the backside of the business, how the business worked, inviting me into um, more of those decision-making places. And um, it's been really great. I wouldn't say that, you know, I'm adept, but I know a lot more than I did. And it's because I asked, you know, not, not everyone is going to be able to make that ask to their, to their management system. Um, but if you think you have that kind of relationship where you can do that and have that conversation, I wouldn't shy away from it. I would, um, I, you know, be courageous and candid and say, you know, please teach me. It's only going to help me do my job better. Now, at this particular time, when you're having this conversation, are you already the chief safety officer for the company or not yet? I am. Okay, so you were already you were already at that position at the yep. time. So then they just yeah. they pretty much opened it up and said, "Okay, we can run into it." Because what I don't want to confuse for some people yeah. is I don't want a location like a location safety manager think that they're going to be able to call their CEO that's in a different state and say, "Hey, I need you to teach me the business, and this is what I want to move up to." Because I don't I don't want to give misdirection. That's exactly what I'm trying to avoid right. here. And I agree with what you're saying about. You know, this is not going to apply to everyone. But even if you take the management level that's inside of that individualized location, even if you go to the GM yes. and say, hey, I want to have a better understanding of how the organization works in a non-threatening way. Yes. Where it's not like, hey, I want your job, but more along the lines of I want to understand if I can be better suited for the position. I agree with what, with what you're saying 100 percent. Yeah. I've, and also another another place to go would be operations operations managers. Um, I've done that as well. Um, particularly, you know, when you think about it, most safety people don't have budgets. Most of us are operating and figuring out how to do our work void of a budget. And so we're trying to figure out where, if we're going to, if we need to ask for personal protective equipment or, you know, air monitoring or whatever, how are we going to pay for that? And operations people have budgets. And so I've sat with um, different operations managers and in other jobs that I've had and said, okay, this is what I need for your people. This is what it's going to take where would that, do you have a budget line for that? Or how could we work it into a capital improvement project if it's a particular kind of thing? Like, where would it fit? And then I've learned quite a bit about just budgeting and, you know, how things are allocated and why and when and the timing of that from operations managers. And so that's that's been part of my self-education in that regard as well. So you're right. You don't necessarily start at the, at the top or nor could you, but you can go, like you said, to your general manager, to operations managers, people who have budgets and who also have to do their own asks every year. Well, I always think that it's funny because a lot of safety people that I deal with always have that misconception that operations wants nothing to do with safety in the regards of, you know, yeah. they're going to be reviewing exactly what's going on. So they're very hesitant at times to have conversations with the operational staff, meaning the management side of it. And so they'll be a little bit hesitant. So then all of a sudden now you're saying go to them and have the conversation about budget. 
And I really think that yeah. that would be an open conversation. The safety person is thinking, hey, there's something that I need from them, opposed to the operations person just saying, they're just trying to do some kind of weird audit from a financial standpoint instead, or something along those lines. Yeah. Right. And, and, you know, again, if you frame it in the way of, you know, how does this impact your employees? What's in it for you? What's in it for them? You know, and bringing things very specific. And, you know, I guess triaging is also a good idea and a suggestion and something that I've put into practice. You know, if you know you have 12 things or, you know, 50 things or whatever it is in safety that that need attention, how can you triage those items based on you know your own your own professional judgment of of risk and exposure um timeline cost um all of the things that you put into that how can you triage that so when you go to someone you're talking about those things that are on the top of your list first and and letting them know that you've done that homework you know like I, we've got a lot of stuff but here are here are the top three here are the top five things that i'm really concerned about things that you know could hurt people and here's what i've seen or here's what's linked to it with dollars or you know people being injured or however it needs to be framed and then how can we work together on that and how can we put it within your budget and what can happen now versus what do we need to wait for and what can we build to the future and those have been really fun conversations because it's kind of getting to the brass tacks and also, you know, where they operate. We're speaking with Jill James from the Accidental Safety Pro. So, Jill, I have to ask you this question, I'm, and, and this is where I found you, so I have to ask the question. Okay. Why did, you, why, <laughs> why did you start the podcast? What happened? How did you say, this is what we need to do? This is the next thing within my safety career that we need to move forward with? two things kind of happened at the same time. I have um, our, my company, Vivid Learning Systems, has a focus group that's made up of safety professionals from around the country. And uh, they're often giving us ideas on things or vetting certain um, things that we're working on. And one of them said one day, um, you know, I listen to a lot of podcasts on my commute and I, I really enjoy the education. I really like that. And we as safety professionals um, don't often get an opportunity to talk with one another because so many of us are sort of silos. Maybe there's one, two of us in an organization. We don't really have an opportunity to talk with one another and learn from one another outside of maybe a professional conference, but then it's always you know, these fits and bursts of conversation while you're trying to get to another presentation or something. And, um, and he said, I think it'd be really cool if we could listen to other safety people talk about how they do what they do. And he said, maybe that's a podcast. And everybody in the focus group was like, that sounds really cool. In addition to what's a podcast <laughs> and, and then <laughs> got a lot of that. And, uh, and then um, pretty soon my marketing team was together and my marketing, I work in support of our marketing um, team and uh, most of them are millennials and, and, uh, and are always looking for, you know, what's the greatest thing. And one of them said, hey, Jill, I think you should start a podcast. And I said, funny you said that focus group said the same thing. And they're like, OK, let's make this happen. And then our marketing director is like, Jill, what are you going to? We got to have a name. We got to have a name. What's it going to be called? And I said, well, I don't know. The question that I ask every new safety professional that I meet, when I meet someone for the first time, I always ask them, tell me your story. How did you get into it? Because 
none of us just, you know, we're not little kids. And somebody asks you what you want to be when you grow up and they say, you know, a teacher, a lawyer, or whatever. Nobody says safety professional. So what's your story? You know, and everybody usually laughs and goes, oh, yeah, I have a story. And I said, so that's what I want the theme to be around. And uh, so our marketing director said, OK, it's the accidental safety professional. How did you get into this accidentally? And so that's how it came to be. So how did you feel about all of a sudden them having these two different or essentially having the groups talk about it and then say, okay, you're going to be the host. Did you feel the pressure automatically on regards of having to come up with a new subject every time an episode comes out? Or how did you feel about even hosting the program? Oh, I just thought it sounded fun because I lo- I'm a story collector by nature. I love to collect people's stories. I love to write about people's stories. And uh, how much more fun can it get than to have a one-on-one conversation with someone to hear their story and to collect it and honor it and learn from it and, and draw out those things that um, that the rest of us can learn from and and hopefully have a little fun along the way. And so I, I, th- I think it's been great. And after being in the profession as long as I have, I have a, I have a long list of people that um, I, I, I hope to interview. And then I'm always asking my guests, like, who else? Who's in your network? Who are your mentors? Um, who do you think would be fun to talk to? Who do you think could share some, some interesting facts? And I'm really committed to, um, on my podcast, to one equal representation of males and females, um, because there's still not a lot of women in our practice. It's growing, it's getting bigger and bigger, but it's really been more of a male dominated workforce. And so I'm being very mindful to, um, include uh, the same amount of women as men in the podcast and same thing with young versus um, more uh, saged into the career let's say and so we've got some people who are just starting out and kind of you know what it's like for them right now in the 21st century and as a young person um, so we can compare and contrast with someone who's been doing it a very long time or maybe is even recently retired. So when you're actually getting some of your guests to come on, do are they hesitant at first in regards of what you're going to have the conversation about? And what I'm referencing that is, do they ask you yeah. if you're going to focus on a particular portion of their career opposed to the whole career in general? You know, I, I let them know that the, the main focus of each podcast because it's called the accidental safety pro is to tell that story like how did you get into it accidentally like that's generally the one of the first questions if not the first question and then the rest of it um, I just want it to be organic so that you know we can have a a, have a casual conversation and um, you know pick up on things that they're telling in their in their history that maybe they hadn't thought about before Um, once in a while before a podcast I'll, I'll interview someone ahead of time to say if there's anything that they're particularly proud of or they want to highlight in their career um, that that they'd like to focus on so that I remember to kind of circle the conversation in some regard um, to that particular area or different areas. Well, I have to tell you, the Accidental Safety Pro, I, I actually have subscribed to it. And, I, and you're on almost every single podcatcher that's out there. So you are, I mean, readily available. So I would recommend to the audience strongly go out there, take a listen to it. If you haven't listened to it, it ha- there's a lot of great information, a lot of great guests on there. And so just take a listen, take the opportunity, subscribe. We're going to put a link on this particular podcast where you can actually follow it directly. And it is, it's a great podcast, covers a lot of information, and you take such a different approach. And that's what I appreciate because... 
sometimes we run into these mm-hmm. issues where you start listening to podcasts and people sit there and they just talk and then they talk about their program they talk about their book mm-hmm. and I, it just gets kind of kind of old and redundant but you take such a different approach and you go you really dive deep into their stories and you let the, these conversations kind of just go through wherever sequence they're going to go through opposed to what i would say that you can hear an interview and you can tell that a lot of the questions are pretty set up and the person already kind of knows the answer they're going to give and i just don't feel that when i'm listening to your podcast i really think it's an excellent no. podcast thank you thank you i appreciate that i, I do not have a have a I have a set of questions. There are some things that just seem to come up that I ask if it seems like the right thing to ask at the time with the person that I'm speaking with. But um, I, I don't. It's not scripted out. It's, it is, like I said, it's, it's organic. So when it's all said and done, what is your goal with your podcast? What are you trying to accomplish? Um, to to um, be able to connect safety professionals. And, you know, with a podcast, it's kind of funny because we're not necessarily making, um, you know, face-to-face connections, but someone is able to hear someone else's story and maybe apply some of that wisdom to their life, um, their professional practice to let them know that maybe what they're hearing, they're not alone and maybe they thought they were. And so it's, um, you know, it's just a way to be able to connect safety professionals um, with their stories um, and and really that's that's the goal that's the goal and you know once in a while people will be um, reaching out like uh, the person whose podcast was released this week um, a woman named Cheryl on um, episode number eight of the accidental safety pro she had sent me an email this week that vendor of hers had sent her an email this week and said I heard you on the accidental safety pro I knew it was your voice and Cheryl hadn't shared the link with her even told her she was going to do it but she had heard about it and she said you did a really great job that was so interesting to hear your story and so I think the more that it happens um, the more we'll be able to have um, real conversations as well. I've had I've had a number of people just reach out to me after listening to an episode and you know saying thank you for that or could we have a conversation sometime or I'd like to know more about that and I think that'll just continue to happen with people as well. Hopefully, hopefully you know the we're we're a tight knit um, group of people in the safety practice. There's really not necessarily that many of us and many of us know one another. And the great thing about safety professionals is we're always willing to share with one another. You know, we don't do proprietary work and uh, safety people are always willing to to help one another. And I think that's really cool. And if, if um, your podcast, my podcast can do that and connect people, then, you know, what a win for our profession. Absolutely. At the end of the day, when when I look into the whole safety aspect of doing the podcast, the goal is really to build a network of people that are out there and really just hear the story. I tell my listeners all the time, if you get a chance, tell your story to someone, even if you want to jump on a podcast, do your own podcast, because it's interesting. People want to hear the different stories. Yeah. There's so many different stories that are out there. Well, Jill, I appreciate you right. coming on. If people want to find out more about you, where can they contact you or get more information about you? Sure. Well, uh, the company website is vividlearningsystems.com and the podcast is the Accidental Safety Pro and you can um, get that on the podcast player of your choosing. Um, We also have it on YouTube as well. So Accidental Safety Pro and Vivid Learning Systems. Thank you so much for having me, Jay. Oh, Jill, I really appreciate you coming on. It was an excellent time. I really did enjoy it. You have a fantastic day. Thank you so much.
The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the host and its guest and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the company. Examples of analysis discussed within this podcast are only examples. They should not be utilized in the real world as the only solution available as they are based only on very limited and dated open source information. Assumptions made within this analysis are not reflective of the position of the company. No part of this podcast may be reproduced, stored in a retrieval system, or transmitted in any form or by any means, mechanical, electronic, recording, or otherwise, without prior written permission of the creator of the podcast, Jay Allen. Join the fun, Join the fun on social media and find us on Facebook at Safety FM. Safety FM.